Hi, everyone. Welcome to Do It Today. I'm Kara Catruzula, and today I'm talking with Sarah Wordsworth, who is a musical storyteller who has created shows for Broadway, television, arenas, cruise ships, and theme parks all around the world. She's the co-writer and creator of In Transit, Broadway's first acapella musical, and has written multiple shows and experiences for Disney, including adaptations of Frozen, Beauty and the Beast, The Little Mermaid, Finding Nemo, and Aladdin. That's a dream job right there. Sarah is also just incredibly generous, kind, and optimistic, and I really learned a lot from her. So that was a big list. Sarah, what are you doing today? Good morning. First of all, I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to talk to you. What am I doing today? Oh my gosh. I always say like, I live a lifetime, it seems, by 9 a.m. every day because I'm an early riser. I'm one of those like morning people who doesn't have to work at being a morning person, which I'm very grateful for, but this backfires in the evening. (laughs) But it's easy for me to get up and get things done in the morning. Some of those things I have to do, some I just want to do, but um, I got up at about four today. (laughs) What? I would have liked to have slept in longer but I had some things on my mind and I went to bed kind of early last night. So, so I got some things done and then got my daughter up for school, uh, made her some breakfast, took her to school. Then I volunteered at the school. We're having a book sale for her elementary school. So I collected and organized some books. Then I met with a school music teacher because I'm going to write a song for the fifth grade graduation or at least a parody. And then I ran home. I like to do that. I like to wear my running clothes to school because then I can't get out of it. I have to get home. And the easiest way is by foot. So here I am. I haven't showered yet, though, Kara. I have not figured out that. I feel like I really need to clarify just for everyone that it is 10.05 a.m. <laughs> right now. And I am I am stuck on the you just had an entire work day. I mean, you're not kidding when you said you had a whole life before 9 a.m. I never really knew what that meant, though. So whenever you said you got stuff done at 4 a.m., like, were you working on on work stuff? Because what is your brain like that early in the morning? I wouldn't know. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't know either. I have no idea what it's like. I try to meet my brain where it is. I mean, I try to sleep until six or so. I set my alarm for seven. I haven't used an alarm in years. But what? Oh, I my gosh. Yeah, I don't use an alarm. I mean, Kara, I think some of this is anxiety, but I have a lot of challenges right now with elder care. Both my husband's parents and mine are all really ill. Mm. And, you know, this was not something that was in my life to have to be the sandwich of I've got this young child. I've got all these parents that need attention and are dying and I'm holding on to work for dear life. So I think that when I wake up early, I try to do things because I know when the day goes on, it will get harder to get anything done for myself. Mm. You know, the phone doesn't ring at that time. Emails don't come in. Scheduling meetings doesn't happen. And my daughter's not up either, which once she's up, it's full attention and I'm glad to give it. But I have to have some hours to myself. So even if they're not the most ideal hours, nobody needs me at that time except me. Yeah. And so I'm exhausted all the time, but I can better deal with the tough things in my day if I've had time to myself. And that's when I get it. We all need that. We all have to have our own time. So, you know, in those 4 a.m. times, sometimes I'm just doing my nails. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, because I know I'm not going to be able to do that later. Right. Uninterrupted space. 
Um, and today I had them on my mind that I'm traveling tomorrow. I'm going up to Toronto just for two nights for work. And I have a lot to do there in a very short amount of time. So I was trying to organize my thoughts for that so I could be super efficient. But when I'm gone, my husband is just like, he's super dad, he's Superman, he can handle it. But there's a lot of things I like to organize for him and for my daughter so that can all go smoothly when I'm out of town. And so I did a lot of that stuff. And then just kind of dive in, take Chelsea to work, maybe run home, which I, I want to also point that kind of ingenious hack out, which is just like wear your running clothes somewhere, because then you're like, if I don't run, this is embarrassing. I have to go home and they're totally unused. So you kind of have to like get yourself to that next destination. Is that the way you organize that morning drop off part of your life? Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, I think it's hilarious because you said take Chelsea to work. And I'm like, yeah, oh, I did to work too. I mean, we're all just beginning our death. <laughs> it's it true. Like she's just uh, clocking in. Yeah, she's We're all clocking in in some way, aren't we? If I don't exercise early in the day, it doesn't happen. I don't love it enough. I'll be honest. Mm -hmm. My husband's really good at it. Like he loves going to the gym. He'll do it anytime in his day. He has time and he makes sure that he does it. If it passes me by, I'm just like, nope, not happening today. So I force myself to exercise in the morning because that's when I'm the most motivated. And logistically, I have to get home from school drop off. We live a certain amount of blocks away. It is either a half an hour walk or a healthy run. And I add a little on. So when you're running, do you listen to anything in particular or are you a, a headphoneless runner? No, I'm always listening to something. And I'm such a slow runner that I can also talk when I run. So I make a lot of phone calls. You know, I'll call my mother or check in with my husband like I did this morning because we were both so busy. And I'm like, this is the time that we can catch up. So I called him. But most of the time I'm listening to a podcast. I start projects with a massive amount of research always. And podcasts are my favorite way to get that research because it's really efficient. I'm always moving around the city. I always have a lot of commuting time. I often am working, I'm running, which doesn't sound relaxing, but it is. It gets my creative juices flowing to listen to other people talking about whatever topic I need to write about. How do you structure that part of research? Because research can be endless, as we all know. I know, that's right. You know, often like if I know there's a topic I need to learn about, or just immerse myself in, I will choose a bunch of podcasts that look good and download them to my phone so that I have them at the ready. And if something's not giving me what I need, I just move on to the next one mm -hmm. in that moment. And if there's something that I need to remember later, I don't trust my brain. So I do a voice memo. And then later, when I finally have finished all of this morning madness and sit down to do the actual work, I can then reference all those notes and the things I've been thinking about and all that. It sounds like your day is sort of split up into a couple of different segments. The morning is an entire day. And then now you're transitioning during everyone's normal working hours to what? Like what will the next couple of hours hold for you? Today's a lot of like meetings about work. But I will say like since I became a mom and my daughter's 10, my whole thing shifted earlier because I want to be completely available in the after school and evening hours. And because I get up so early that I'm less productive creatively as the day goes on. So I don't really do creative heavy lifting at night or even in the late afternoon or evening if I can help it. I have a meeting about like with my director in Toronto that's working on this Disney project with me so that we can really get our ducks in a row with our limited time that we'll have together, what we both want to accomplish. So we're going to do a planning meeting for that. I'm going to run down to the BMI workshop, not physically run. I'm going <laughs> to take the subway there, although I've been known to do it. 
I will go to BMI today to the musical theater writers workshop, but unfortunately I can't stay the whole time because my husband is in rehearsal for something. So I need to get back uptown and then pick up my daughter from a piano lesson. And then I'm on tonight for dinner and homework and all that stuff. You mentioned that you're going to pop down to the BMI workshop. Can you explain a little bit about what it is and and your role there and, and what it means to you? Sure. The official name is the BMI Lehman Engel Musical Theater Writers Workshop. I've been a member since 2005. I started as a lyricist there. It is a completely free training program in musical theater writing. Uh, with a couple of different sections and levels. I'm also involved with the Book Writers Workshop there. At some point during my membership, they asked me if I would transition and serve on the steering committee. And I also teach a lot of the classes. So BMI has been in my life for a long time. It is my motivation. It is my artistic community. It is a place where I feel like I can give back to early career writers. I give the BMI Workshop a lot of credit for the fact that I'm able to be a professional writer. I'm very grateful for it. I don't know if I told you this, but I wrote about this in my motivational journal, Do It Today, which is what this podcast is sort of named for and and based off of. But during the auditions for BMI, you have to go up and like recite your lyrics or play your music in front of a table with the steering committee. And I wrote about being just like scared out of my mind. I didn't know what I was doing. Everyone (laughs) was really scared. Like you have to go up and literally read what you've written to, to know music. It is scary. I mean, we are not scary, but I was scared when I auditioned. That moment, I think back to it a lot because it reminds me of taking that risk and going beyond what you think you actually can do and doing something outside of your comfort zone. And I was just wondering if you find yourself in those situations, how you sort of react. Do you find yourself in those positions where you feel like you're out of your comfort zone now? I do. And what's really weird is that the older I get, the more I find myself in those situations, you know, or at least I don't have the, not that I don't have the confidence that I did as a younger creative person, but I just have to force myself more to take a risk. And it should be the other way around, right? It should be like, oh, I've been able to accomplish this, this, and this, but um, I have to force myself to work through those uncomfortable situations more than I did, I think. I have no idea why that is. I don't know. Is it a sort of like losing a little bit of that nerve, I think, or or like the naivete whenever we were, you know, 22 and just like, I'll do anything and I don't care. For me, that's definitely true. I mean, with musical theater writing, my journey, what's interesting is that it wasn't the thing that I had to do or I was going to die. For me, that was performing. You know, I was a performer. I went to school as an acting major and I was convinced that, you know, of course, like many young performers, it was like, I must be in a Broadway show. Like, I have to do that in my life. And I always wrote on the side. So when I began writing more and when I and when writing started to seem to go well for me or somebody wanted to actually pay me to do it, it all seemed like a non-pressure gift at the time. You know, it was like, okay, yeah, that's kooky, but I'll do that. Whereas I always had a lot of nerves about my performing career because I so badly wanted to do that. I think what's happening is now that I'm mostly a writer, there are things I want to do with it. So the stakes feel higher in that way. But in my early writing career, it was just like, yeah, this is, this is crazy, but I'll try. Isn't it nice if we could just keep a little of that? 
I was wondering if we could talk about that Julia Cameron quote. I don't know if you have it near you, but you've shared it before. I sure do. I have my laptop and I'm taking a walk to my mirror because that's where I keep it. Okay, here it is. Hit us with the Julia Cameron quote from The Artist's Way. It's like a sonic boom. Yes, this is, this is so fun. There will be many times when we won't look good to ourselves or anyone else. We need to stop demanding that we do. It is impossible to get better and look good at the same time. Remember that in order to recover as an artist, you must be willing to be a bad artist. Give yourself permission to be a beginner. By being willing to be a bad artist, you have a chance to be an artist and perhaps over time a very good one. When I make this point in teaching, I'm met by instant defensive hostility. But do you know how old I will be by the time I really learn to play the piano, act, paint, write a decent play? Yes, the same age you will be if you don't. So let's start. It's so good and so true, but also why does being a bad artist have to hurt so much? <laughs> it hurts so much. What does that mean to you, that quote? You know, it's funny because I came across this quote again when I was very young, you know, sort of I came across Julia Cameron in the artist's way my senior year of college. At the time, I was like, oh, yes, this all makes a lot of sense to me. And I would say that book for me was very influential with the courage to try, mm -hmm. the courage to keep going, the courage for me. I needed a lot of courage to not take a full time job and to risk everything and try to figure all that out. But the age stuff she's talking about really resonates so much more now. It's this kick I was telling you about that I have to give myself. It's true that you will be the same age you will be if you don't try it. So you may as well try it. Again, back to the stakes thing. Like in my 20s, I wasn't also attempting to save for college for a kid. You know, it was just me just trying to pay my own bills. It all feels like the decisions I make now affect this other person and my family and the risks that I take. I have to, I ask all the time if they're worth it. So mm -hmm. I, I find this quote really helpful because there are still some things that I'd like to do and that I think I'm scared to do. I, I give this quote also at the beginning of the BMI workshop when I teach my second year course, because I want people to know in the beginning, I don't know about being a bad artist, but we have to allow ourselves to be vulnerable in front of people and to present a draft that isn't great. And we have to feel okay about that because you can't get to a great draft until you show someone a not so great draft and get some feedback on it. How do you sort of navigate notes in that way or feedback, especially if feedback might be something that you don't agree with? You know, it really depends what I'm working on, I think, because I do some commission work and you have to sort of understand that game. You know, if it's work for hire and you are being paid to write something, first of all, there is going to be feedback, especially I write a lot of things based on really famous IP, intellectual property, you know, whether that's for Disney or for something else, I adapt books. You know that you are going to get some feedback, whether it's from a franchise, whether it's from a product team or uh, lots of creative people giving you feedback, movie studio, whatever it is. I don't take the feedback personally in those cases, or at least I try not to. I take it as a gift. It's like, yes, I want to do a good job here. Mm -hmm. You know, so as a list maker, I write it all down, all of it, <laughs> every bit of it. I like to put those little bubbles in my notes section, you know, so I can check them off if I do it. But I try to take it in. If it's my personal work, something that's like, this is the thing I must say, feedback's harder. It just is because you take it more personally, or at least I do. But I also feel like taking 
feedback is a part of collaboration and you get better at it. Just like mm-hmm. I think you get better at collaboration the more you do. We aren't, we aren't born natural collaborators. And it can be shameful when you go to present a song, say, in the Be On My workshop. I mean, I w- I've been there. I was a student in that workshop for years, and it can feel very shameful. But if you can reframe it as a gift to make your work better, that's helpful. It's so interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it as shameful, even though that's the exact feeling. It's not just brutal or, oh, I don't agree, but it feels like I risked something or I was vulnerable and then I'm being taken apart in some kind of way. It's a very Brene Brown version of, <laughs> of what uh, what goes on, but I appreciate that perspective on it. Are there any rules for collaboration that you think are kind of unbreakable or that you really try to respect in your own collaborative relationships? Uh, so many. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel I feel very strongly about collaboration and a mutual respect and work ethic, but I definitely have preferences in collaborative situations and I try to be a good collaborator. And I also will say most writers love writing. Like they love like, I'm going to sit by myself now and I'm going to write. That is the least favorite part of my job is sitting by myself. And I will always say that. I love being in a room with someone else with great ideas. And I love the energy of bouncing off of each other. I just, if I'm forced to write by myself, and I often am because I've been hired to do some job, I just cannot wait to get in the room with others as fast as possible. So I get through that draft so that I can be with others because I find it highly motivating. And I find that no matter what, our work is going to be better together. And whether those collaborators are writers or orchestrators or directors, designers, whoever it is, I don't want to be alone. That's how I feel. But when you feel that way, you have to then be somebody that people also want to be with. One of the collaborative things that drives me crazy is when you have to present something with a collaborator, but you haven't seen it because the person was Mm -hmm. up so late working on it and they were working and doing a great job. But if you go into a professional presentation, whether that's in a workshop setting or whether that is your job that you have, and some change has been made that you haven't been able to see, but your name is still on it, I find that to be the biggest collaborative offense of all time. So I like to set a working thing with people where it's like, and we won't be ready with this at the last minute, right? Like when we have deadlines, there will be time for us to review it together so that nobody's blindsided. Because I feel like once you get in front of the class or in front of the creative directors or in front of whoever, being a united front is really nice. Whether you still have questions or not about what's in that draft, standing together and believing in it and knowing what you're presenting is like collaboration 101 to me. So I'm really adamant about deadlines and work ethic in that way. And I don't turn in things late and I don't enjoy collaborators who do. Mm. That sounds really mean. But no, that sounds really, like a rule uh, though. That sounds, that that, sounds that's like... my rule, I guess. <laughs> Whenever you're working on a show and you have a collaborator, how do you communicate that the project is done to both of your satisfaction? You know, as you asked that question, I thought, oh, which of my pieces do I feel like was really done? And I think none of them. I love rewriting. I like writing. I love rewriting. I think I would dig into anything I've ever written again because I don't feel like it's done or I don't feel like it's as great as it could be or has met all of the notes, all of the unfinished business, everything. And I think that in the business I'm in, there's a deadline, there's an opening, there's a something and you put your pencils down and live with it. 
sometimes you're thrilled with it. And sometimes you're dying inside (laughs) because there was this huge (laughs) list of what was left undone. And I've just learned to live with it, I guess. But I think about all of my projects or all of my things always and what I could still change in them, you know, and not in a sad way, just in a, I'm eager to keep on thinking about it kind of way, you know, but the deadline comes and you hand something in. That's what happens. This is very comforting. I don't know. It's very matter of fact, but also like, yes, you can have the impulse to want to go back, but you also put something forward that now exists in the world and is made real to other people as well. So I'm going to hold on to that one. I'm going to put that quote on my mirror. I always say, if you want to put your musical in the, say, the Fringe Festival, it can be exactly the musical you want it to be, probably. Mm -hmm. You, You can make that vision exactly it. Once you start having more professional productions, at least it's been my experience, pieces of it get changed and lost to you. A lot of people come in. There's a Mm -hmm. lot of people in the mix. And that can be really amazing because also things can come in that were never going to come out of your mind. And they could be amazing and brilliant. But I find the higher profile, the project, there will probably be many things for me that were left in my notes section and not checked off. And that's okay because I want to be a working writer, you know? I mean, I can write things just for me and be 100% happy with them, I guess. But I want to work with others and I want others to take in the work. So that just means there will be other opinions and they won't be yours. Oh, that's part of the game. And I love that game myself. I really love that. I want to be a working writer. Like if that's the goal, then there are all the things that you get to do to make that happen. Well, I could talk to you forever, but I feel like you are in the middle of two days in a (laughs) 24-hour period. So you're going to the workshop, you're coming back, you are doing dinner time, bedtime with your daughter. What time are you going to sleep since you woke up at 4 (laughs) a.m.? If the lights are out, like if we want, (laughs) my poor husband, because like if we finally sit down to watch a TV show, I'm like, can we please leave the lights on? Like, I can't do this whole like movie theater setup in the apartment because if the lights go down and I've stopped moving, I will fall asleep. It depends how long I make it tonight, but I don't go to bed before my daughter and she goes to bed around 930 because then I like pack her lunch and get ready for the next day and we'll see when I collapse. That's the answer. I hope we can watch a couple Gilmore Girls episodes because my daughter and I are in season four. I hope that the reward at the end of this long, crazy day is that we have time to uh, watch an episode or two. That sounds like a perfect capper to the day. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to tell us a little about your double day. This is a new level on the podcast. Now I'm just inspired to actually do something today since I'm thinking about the six hours head start that you had. And uh, I guess I'll see you in a couple of hours. I will see you at the workshop, which is going to be delightful. Yeah, this is so fun. Thanks for having me. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, Kara. I'll see you later. Bye. Bye.